Welcome to Addiction and the Family, Episode 26, Conversations with Counselors. Paige Mako. How has addiction affected your family? It robbed me of my father. Addiction's affected my family in absolutely every way. Um, it has caused a lot of turmoil. It goes back to what I understand is at least three generations. It robbed my daughter of her mother. It robbed my mother of her daughter. Addiction has made our family quite challenging. It affected my family tremendously. It's affected my relationship with my sister where I wouldn't I'd go for months without talking to her. It's a very difficult thing for everybody involved. It doesn't just affect the, the one individual. It's a disease that affects the whole family. Addiction has spread not only genetically through like some of my uh, relatives and I assume ancestors. It's uh, generational. I think of him every day. Welcome to Addiction in the Family, a podcast by and for family members of anyone with an addiction. My name is Casey Arriaga, and I'm a clinical social worker and addiction counselor at both Windmill Wellness Ranch and In Mind Out Emotional Wellness Centers, and I'm the author of Realistic Hope, the family survival guide for facing alcoholism and other addictions. And I'm Kira Arriaga, addiction counselor intern and recovery coach at Windmill. Casey and I were in our addictions together for over 10 years and have now been in recovery together for almost twice that long. I've led hundreds of family workshops, but just as important is that Kira and I have lived the experience of being family to addiction as both children and adults. Join us as we offer experience, strength, and realistic hope about how you and your family can find recovery together. In this episode, we continue the Conversations with Counselors series with an in-depth interview with Paige Mako of Chronic Wellness Counseling in Austin, Texas. As you'll hear, Paige has experienced the effects of addiction from many angles, as a professional, as a family member, and as someone in recovery from her own addiction. Paige and Casey discuss running family workshops, what they see family members needing most, and how they have been affected by addiction and recovery. All this and more after a word from one of our sponsors. Addiction in the Family is brought to you in part by the generous support of Windmill Wellness Ranch, an innovative treatment center located in the beautiful hill country of Texas and serving clients and their families from throughout the United States. I'm Shannon Mollish, CEO of Windmill Wellness Ranch. We offer the best in neurotechnology to heal the brain and the best therapy to heal the mind. Call us today at 210-762-6217. Welcome back. Paige, it is such a delight to have you on the podcast. So I've been looking for an excuse to do this interview for a while now. So why don't you introduce yourself? (laughs) Thank you for having me, Casey. I'm excited to be here. My name is Paige Mako. I am a LCDC and an LPC, Licensed Professional Counselor. I'm in private practice now, but I used to work, I would say, about eight years in a substance abuse treatment facility. Which is where we met, working at the same facility, and we co-facilitated a lot, a lot, a lot of family workshops. I gotta say, I learned a lot from working with you, and it's always been a pleasure getting your perspective and your energy around working with families, which is one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the show. Yes, I was going to say the same thing. That is where Casey and I met. And we facilitated, God, that workshop for three years, four years? 
at least. We're talking every weekend. Every single Saturday. So if we do the math, we probably have done 150 to 200 workshops together. Oh, yeah. I, easily. Which leads us into why we're here. So, Paige, what brings you on a show called Addiction in the Family? Well, um, besides you asking me to do the interview. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, Addiction in the Family, I personally am a person in recovery. I've been in recovery for 13 years, so since 2008. And one of the things that I learned getting sober, I didn't realize this initially because I didn't do treatment. I went straight into AA. You learn a lot in treatment that you don't learn right away in AA. But one of the things that I learned was how important it is to really understand the family dynamic and how that dysfunction in the family plays into the addiction and my behaviors and how important it is to try and get the family involved if the individual is either in treatment or in recovery that doesn't always happen but i do feel like it's very important addictions of family disease it is not just the individual and as a person in recovery and a professional what do you mean when you say it's a family disease so addiction affects at least at least five people outside of the individual that's using and it's typically the people closest to them and that's their family right so when these individuals in active addiction start getting into behaviors or coping skills that are maladaptive or um, unhealthy coping skills the family members are kind of doing the same thing it's almost like they run congruent with each other in the unhealthy behavior. So when the individual gets into recovery, if the family members don't get into some kind of recovery, they're going to stay the same as they were and kind of be in that dynamic. We take on specific roles, dysfunctional family roles, and the natural tendency of the family is going to be to kind of try to push those roles back into play, even if they're unhealthy. So I love talking about family and recovery, and I think it's a very important topic for families who have a loved one who's either struggling with addiction or getting sober. If you're comfortable talking about it, how did that show up in your own family? <laughs> I, I kind of knew that question was coming. Well, what I ended up discovering there's a lot of underlying issues underneath the drugs and the alcohol. Most of those issues I learn, I learned from my parents, from my caretakers. We learn from our people. And my people were my parents and the other people around me. And some of those coping skills were not healthy. Uh, one of the things I started noticing whenever I was uh, several years into recovery was really where I picked up some of that people-pleasing. What else? Poor boundaries. I did not realize that was something that I had gotten from my family. Uh, manipulation. In those real subtle ways. Dishonesty. So, although I didn't have parents who were, you know, straight up utilizing drugs and alcohol to the point of excess, there were still the behaviors within the dynamic. Now, 
We know that sometimes that gets passed down through generations and families. Right. Are you aware if there's been addiction in other family members besides yourself? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes, I'm very aware of this. Although my mom likes to kind of brush by that whenever I bring it up. But uh, I have several family members on her side, on the maternal side, who are in active addiction right now. I don't know as much about my dad's side of the family, uh, unfortunately, but I've definitely got it from mom's side and it skips generations, right? So it doesn't mean that my mother is necessarily an alcoholic. And I have two siblings and they drink, they're normies. <laughs> they can drink a little bit and put it down. I can't do that. Yeah. And we know that each person in the family in active addiction will reinforce some of those patterns. How did you notice that your own addiction affected the family dynamic? That's a great question. I feel like it was insidious in a way because it wasn't very obvious initially. I mean, I drank with my parents when I was of legal drinking age. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. It was, uh, it was a little bit younger than that. But I would kind of hang out with my parents. We would go places together and, and, you know, hang out. So then when I sort of crossed over that line from the cucumber to the pickle. Could you explain what that means, the cucumber to a pickle? Some of our audience may not be used to that expression. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Okay. So once a cucumber turns into a pickle, that's it. It can't go back to being a cucumber. So once I cross over that line into maybe heavy drinking, into alcoholism, I cannot go back no matter how many years I go without picking up a drink. If I am a real alcoholic, which it talks about in our big book, which I am, I will never be able to drink normally no matter how hard I try. Is that ever hard for your family to understand, given that you used to drink with them? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. My mom won't even say the word. She will not even say the word. Even today, it's been 13 years. They've never done Al-Anon. So I, I just don't think they get it. I have to remind them sometimes, because when I go home for the holidays, there's alcohol all over the place. And it's okay now because I have been in recovery for a long time, but sometimes, you know, I've got like that, that alcohol detector and I can see, I'm like, there's alcohol, there's alcohol, there's alcohol, there's alcohol. So I'm like, uh, hey, do you guys mind putting that, you know, where I can't see it? I don't know. It's almost like they have this delusion that it's been lo long enough, quote, that I'm better. Do they ever offer it to you? No, 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 no. And the reason, the reason is because I got so bad that I ruined quite a few holidays, family gatherings, things like that, you know? So I, I know that they're much happier with me being sober and they can see that I am happier myself being sober. So no, they would never offer me any alcohol. So the denial doesn't run quite deep enough to offer it to you? No, they never offer it to me, but they're careless about it in a way. How so? 
I think it was like two Christmases ago, I was enamored with one of my new toys. I think it was like a Kindle or something like that. And I had a Topo Chico in one of those tall koozies. And my dad had his Heineken in one of those tall koozies. And I asked my brother-in-law to hand me my Topo Chico, which was supposed to be by all my things on the counter. He handed me my dad's beer. And because I was so enamored with what I was doing, I took a big swig of it. <laughs> yeah, I did. I spit it out and it really freaked me out. Um, so they're just careless about it in that way, I feel. My recovery is my responsibility. So I will say that, but it would be nice sometimes if, uh, you know, like, oh, this is Paige's purse. Maybe I shouldn't put my beer there. Well, for some of our family members listening to this story who may be thinking, what do I do with my loved one when they get sober? What do I do when they get out of treatment? What would you say to them? Yeah, okay. Newly sober, right? I would say to the family member, you can't control their recovery. There's nothing that the family member can do to keep their loved ones sober. But that can be extremely difficult, especially if we're stuck in kind of those um, dysfunctional behaviors of codependency, because that comes up a lot. So I always recommend, and you know this from doing the family workshop, Casey, uh, Al-Anon. I always recommend Al-Anon to family members. And if they have no idea what that is? Typically, if they don't have any idea what it is, I start handing them uh, information about it, pamphlets. Uh, I'll send them to the Al-Anon, isn't it Al-Anon.org? Right. Website, yeah. I'll send them to the website. Al-Anon has so much literature. So even if they're not super comfortable going to meetings right away, they can at least start looking at some of the literature and learning because it's not about what their family member is or is not doing. It's really about, it's really about them. We have to learn how to detach. And what does that word mean to you? Oh, the detachment? Um, you know, I, it's not kicking my loved one to the curb or anything or, or a client. I'm not going to, or a sponsee. I'm not going to just kind of leave them hanging, but I also don't need to hook my emotions onto theirs or their behaviors. I can let them feel what they need to feel and do what they need to do. I can express how I feel about it. I feel scared when I see you isolating and not going to meetings, but that's it. Get in with some vulnerability, get out. So detachment is tough. I still t I talk to people about that all the time, still in private practice in many different respects, not just with addiction. So if we come back to the idea of the family member questioning themselves when their loved one is newly sober, what can I do? What can I not do? Do I hide all the alcohol when they come over? How do I make it safe for them? What would you say about that? <laughs> My first thought is, if you got a bunch of alcohol in the house and you have to think about hiding it, how much are you drinking? <laughs> That's my first thought. 
You know, if if it was me and I had a newly sober loved one, I certainly would not have a bunch of alcohol around the house for them to kind of see. Because look, the first year in sobriety is so focused on not picking up a drink. Okay, I don't want to pick up a drink. I don't want to pick up a drink. So the more support that they can get around that, the better. I always recommend people in their first year of sobriety not to be around alcohol if they can help it. Why play with fire? It's hard enough trying to get sober. It's the hardest thing you'll ever do, right? Yeah. So now, as we fast forward a little bit, the person in recovery is five or 10 years sober. What do you tell the family now about leaving alcohol out, among other things? <laughs> well, it would be, it's very considerate. <laughs> <laughs> to think about that. But I suppose someone with, you know, a decade more of sobriety, it could be around consideration and respect and ask them, hey, how do you feel about us having some wine at dinner for this holiday? Or, you know, just get their input on it instead of just kind of pretending like it's not there. And what do you say to the newly sober person whose family is saying, we're not changing, this is your problem? <laughs> yeah, that happens a lot. Well, it makes me think about uh, Brene Brown and trust in the marble jar. And uh, unfortunately, when we get sober, we have to change people, places, things. And unfortunately, sometimes the people that we have to stop hanging out with so much end up being our family members because it's not safe for our recovery. I remember very clearly, uh, it was a Easter of 2009. I was getting my year chip and my family wanted me to come over and I was feeling really off that day. And I knew they'd all be drinking over there. And so I was like, yeah, I can't. And I, my my brother in particular gave me so much crap about that. I don't even know if he remembers, but I remember because I, I knew what I needed to do for me. What kinds of things was he saying? Oh, he was like, that's real nice. I cannot believe that you're not going to come over here on Easter. I was still living in Houston at the time, so it wouldn't have been like a far drive. Um, I got sober in Houston. So I can't believe you're not going to come over. Mom's feelings are going to be really hurt. Everyone's going to be really upset. So just doing that thing, giving me the guilt trip. And I didn't go. I didn't go. And I instead went to a meeting and got my chip, my one-year chip. <laughs> well, I'm going to say, yeah, Paige, well done. But how was that for you? Oh, it was, I, I remember crying after I got off the phone with my brother and I most likely, I'm pretty sure I called my sponsor right after that. Um, but I was really, it was really hard. I had, I was still really wrapped up in the people pleasing stuff and I didn't want to hurt anybody's feelings and I didn't want my family to be mad at me. So it was hard. Well, have they gained understanding over time? Yeah, they absolutely, yes. And honestly, I feel like you and I used to say this a lot in the family workshop. It only takes one person in a relationship or a dynamic to change that dynamic. And I have experienced that with my family. And what I mean by that is because I have 
learns how to practice vulnerability and honesty, I bring that to my family. And I've had really hard conversations with my parents about maybe concerns or health stuff or whatever it is. And they have learned how to get more vulnerable. So we're a lot closer as a family now. And it's, that's pretty cool. Well, that's really beautiful. Yes. If I may say, I've had the same experience in my adoptive family. My adoptive family is not big on sharing of feelings and stuff like that, although I'll say my brother has opened up more to me and my mom has opened up more to me. And I don't want to take all the credit and say, that's because of me. But I'll say that I know that I did start showing up in a more vulnerable way. Mm -hmm. So when my mom would ask how I was doing, instead of saying, here's the weather, here's the dog, here's the garden, because that's usually where she likes to go conversationally. <laughs> when our daughter was struggling and we thought it was schizophrenia, we might have been still working together then, you and I. Yes. And I remember calling home, and I wasn't even calling home because I had this big news. I had just gotten used to calling home. And when they asked how our daughter was doing, I was able to say, well, we think it might be bad. Yeah. And there's a long time when I wouldn't have said that. It would have been like, oh, we're all good here. Ew. Because I was raised with that alcoholic family pattern in which we pretend like we're all okay and especially didn't let anyone outside of our immediate family know what was really happening. Yeah. So fast forward, I'm going to say probably about two years ago now, I went out to be with my mom for five days. I wanted to give my brother some relief since he's the one who lives near her and takes care of her most of the time. Well, when I got there, my brother told me he had canceled all the regular caregivers and he would be back in a few days. I, I hadn't actually known that that's what was going to happen. So I was like, okay, well then, cool. That's what we're doing. And I quickly realized that since I had moved out of the house at 18, I hadn't spent five days in a row with my mom. So here I am at 50 something sitting with her. And I saw that we had this opportunity that we might never have again right. to talk about our childhood, family relationships, what it was like to be married to my dad, both when he was drinking and when he got sober in the last two years of his life. Yeah. So I said, hey, mom, I would like to ask you some questions and learn some of these things while we have time. And I kid you not, she looked straight up in the sky and said, do you see that airplane? <laughs> yeah. And I thought, OK, well, maybe it's not going to happen. Uh -huh. Then I caught myself and I thought about some of the work you and I had done and had I actually asked if she was shutting it down or was I just assuming that? So I waited a moment and said, it sounds like maybe you're not comfortable talking about these things. And then that kind of sat there for a minute. And then she finally said, you know, I'm afraid that if I tell you too much about myself, then you won't think that much of me. Oh, yes. <laughs> and I thought, wow, she has been holding back for all of my life because she's afraid that I'm not going to like her. Yeah. So that gave me the opportunity to say, Mom, I'm going to love you just as much no matter what. I just want to know more about you. Yes. I'd say it took a couple of minutes of dead silence. And then she started telling me things. And for the rest of my stay, up until about an hour before I left for the airport, she was still telling me stories about her childhood. Yeah. We've since looked through old photos of her and my dad before there were kids in the picture, seeing their dynamic. It just opened all this stuff up. Now, I can't have made that happen, but I know that being in recovery and being able to bring that vulnerability it opened up a door that otherwise wouldn't have been opened. Yeah. 
That's amazing. Yes, those are the little things that I notice. Like, uh, I was terrified of my father growing up because he was pretty angry. And that's all I saw. But when I kind of started working in my private practice and I see veterans, you know, because I do the EMDR PTSD work. And so my dad was in Vietnam and I've recently kind of been talking to him about that a little bit and just asking him questions and like, wow, dad, that must have been really hard, huh? And he's been opening up to me and talking to me about it. And sometimes I'll just shoot him a text and just kind of like, hey, what does this mean? And he'll tell me, well, when we were in the service, it meant this, this. So he kind of gets to talk about that stuff. And so that's been really cool. Do you think any of those opportunities would have opened up if you hadn't been in recovery? No. No, I think I would have remained. Because my brother and my sister have remained this way pretty closed. Certainly not doing very much uh, vulnerability or emotions. My siblings have gotten better about it too. And I'm not going to take credit for that, like you said, but I, I feel like I have been able to bring the voice of recovery into the family after many, many years though. God, I remember when I would go see family, it was not good. I would fall right back into old behaviors almost as soon as I drove into the neighborhood. I could feel myself revert back and I don't do that anymore. Yeah, it's another beautiful gift of recovery, right? Yeah, that thing you're talking about, reverting to old behaviors and not really expecting ourselves to do that. Let's talk about that. Mm. Not just for you, but for family members who might be surprised to find themselves going back to old behaviors just as much as their loved one. Yes, because it happens so much. Uh, like, I know what buttons to push. So I know where my mom's um, kind of soft spot is, right? Where she feels sorry for me or she can't bear to have me suffer. So some of those old behaviors can be those little manipulation tactics like, oh, mom, I wasn't able to pay this thing because this happened to me and then I'd go to the doctor and this and my whole motive around that would be for my mother to say, you want me to take care of the bill for you? Instead of just being an assertive communicator and letting my parents know if I needed to like, hey, I'm struggling financially. Can you help me? Are you able to do that? Instead of doing the manipulative kind of thing. Because I was very manipulative. That's hard to imagine. <laughs> right? Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> Just kidding. I was a very manipulative person for most of my life. Yeah. And I've tried to shed as much of that as possible. And still occasionally catch myself like, oh, wait, no, I'm doing that thing. Yes. The difference in recovery is that I can say, hold on a second. Yeah. In fact, I had a sponsor who told me to not just tell on myself if I realized I'm doing it, but that I could treat with humor, like, I was trying to manipulate you just now. Did it work? <laughs> yeah, I had this girl, uh, this woman I used to know, um, she ended up moving, but she, when I got into the rooms in Austin, when I uh, found you know my home group here, she um, had like 24 years sober and she's my age. Uh, so that's, she got sober super young, but she said that, um, 
She's like, yeah, you just got to stop yourself right in the middle of the sentence. If you find yourself like lying or being manipulative, because those are such old behavior. They just, we just default to that stuff sometimes. Just stop in the middle of the sentence and say, you know what? That's not true. I was about to lie. Yep. <laughs> I, sorry, I was about to lie and I don't want to do that. I don't want to be a dishonest person. So let me uh, tell you what the truth is. It's fun hanging out with people in recovery because I get to see them do that. Yeah. They'll be like... About five years ago, no, wait, it was more like six months ago. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. When I, when I was in jail for two years, okay, I was only in jail for two months. <laughs> <laughs> I used to do that to be like cooler. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was in jail for six months. Not true. <laughs> Wasn't true at all. I was, it was not that long. <laughs> so, yes. Where do you see where family members can go and fall into their old behaviors? You know, it's interesting because if the family isn't doing some kind of recovery, like Al-Anon or therapy or something, I feel like they're in those old behaviors often. We're habitual creatures, so I feel like the old behaviors are just kind of there. Hmm. Yeah. Well, recovery fellowships obviously make a huge difference, as does therapy. Oh, yeah. Most of the research done on that, of course, is done on people with addiction. Nowhere near as much, I mean, that I can find, is done on family members. Yeah. And yet my experience is that it applies across the board on both sides of the aisle, as it were. (laughs) Research shows that going into a recovery fellowship, whether it's AA, SMART, you know, Women for Sobriety, Life Ring, Secular Sobriety all shown to have the same results as long as you show up, participate, help others, get phone numbers of people to talk to in between meetings, all those kinds of things. Right. There's something about the magic of working with other people who are heading towards the same goal that nothing else brings because we're such social creatures. Yes, we are wired for connection. We have to have connection and we are social beings. And that's why the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous has been around since 1935. It's a fellowship. We get to connect with other people who are going through the same thing. Same with Al-Anon. Being able to connect with people who are going through the same thing is so vital. Just being in that place and being able to go to an Al-Anon meeting and listen to other people sharing very similar experiences or to have someone look at you and say, yeah, me too, me too. That's such a relieving feeling. Let's take a quick break to hear from one of our sponsors, and then we'll return with more of Casey's interview with Paige Mako. Among our sponsors, the most important one is you. If you like what we're doing in Addiction and the Family, here are some ways you can help support it and carry the message further. If you haven't read Casey's book, Realistic Hope, The Family Survival Guide for Facing Alcoholism and Other Addictions, it is now available in paperback on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and other online retailers. It's also available on Kindle, Nook, and Apple Books. If you have read it, tell a friend, family member, or anyone you meet who might benefit from its message. If you feel so inspired, please write a review on Amazon or any of the other retailers. Last but not least, we are on Patreon under Addiction and the Family. Thanks for all your support. We couldn't do this without you. Welcome back. 
Let's return to Casey's interview with Paige Mako. I can't think of how many times we've had family members say, well, I have some support. You know, I talk to my sister. Right. And I think that's good, and I'm glad you're doing that. But your sister is also emotionally wrapped up in it. Yes, they are. So then they'll say, well, I talked to my church group, which is also good. But have any of them been through this to where they can say, when my loved one went through treatment? That's right. That's the important piece right there. We share our experience, strength, and hope with others in recovery. Whatever recovery it is, whether it's ACA, whether it's CODA, which is Codependent Anonymous, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous, Al-Anon. Whatever it is, we share our experience, strength, and hope. Well, we have a chance to hear from people who have not only been through the same experiences, but have come out the other side. And there's something about that. Yes. I mean, I don't know about you, but if I watch a show or a movie where there's a recovery group, almost inevitably, everybody in the group is at the same level and they're all in trouble. Because that makes good drama, right? Right. Everybody's been sober like two weeks. Everybody's struggling. You don't hear a whole lot of people with three months sober talking to people with three years sober who are talking to people with 20 years sober. Yeah. Or people who can say, I'm 70 now, but I remember when I was 25 and my husband went to treatment and I put on a nice dress and went to go see him on family day and there he was, the guy I wanted to marry. And then we went through 30 years of recovery together. Mm -hmm. And there's nothing like that. Hearing from someone else who has been right where you are is now years past it and they're still showing up. They're still sharing experience, strength, and hope. Yes. You know, we need that. I need that. I know when I was new in recovery, it was so important for me to hear a person with a decade, 20 years, whatever it was, say that alcohol does still pop into their mind. You know, and there's a woman who I see in meetings and she's got 35 years sober and she says, you know what, if alcohol still worked for me, I'd still be drinking it. <laughs> and it's true. I'm like, yes, that's that's a good way to put it. So that's another thing actually with the family members and what can they do to support? Because I remember my family, I, I had said something in, in like my first six months of sobriety about I wanted a beer and my mother like freaked out. Oh my God, I can't believe, why would you ever do that to yourself? You ruined your life. And I was like, whoa. So I called one of the, my people in AA. I was like, hey, I, I want a beer. And she was like, yeah, okay, what's going on? <laughs> like she got it, you know? So the family like freaking out on me because I was being honest about having cravings was not supportive. And family members need to be able to do that same thing. Yes. They need to be able to call someone in their recovery fellowship and say, oh my God, my daughter just said she wanted to have a beer. Right and have someone go, oh yeah, honey, I've been through that a million times. Right, I've been through that, it's no big deal. Let's go get coffee, it's gonna be okay. Like, let's be realistic, this is hard. Being a family member of a person who's trying to get sober or someone who's in recovery is difficult, especially in those first couple of years and being the person getting sober, it's hard. It's not what it looks like. It's my family used to say, I don't understand why you do this. Now you're sitting in jail. Now you're going to lose your apartment. You can't just stop. You can't stop for that. No, if I could stop, I would. 
If I could stop, I would. Yeah. I was talking with the sponsor yesterday, and we were debating the meaning of the word powerlessness. Mm-hmm. A lot of people struggle with that in that word in 12-step recovery. Yeah. So here's how I look at that. Left to myself, do I make a promise to myself and then I can't keep it? Mm-hmm. Left to myself, if I start, I'm not going to stop, or I'm certainly not going to stop where I told myself I was going to stop. <laughs> which is why I'm never left to myself anymore. <laughs> yeah. By that, I mean... I engage in my recovery every day, usually multiple times a day. Yeah. Whether it's getting to a meeting or two, which has been made easier by the plethora of online and phone meetings available since the pandemic. Right? The Zoom is so convenient. And then there's a lot of resources for family members, too. There are Al-Anon meetings available 24-7. You don't have to only go to meetings in your area. Yes. Go to an Al-Anon meeting in Australia. Go to a meeting in South Africa. Mm-hmm. If you need help at 2 a.m., Right? Wherever you the are, Zoom is so convenient. it's the middle of the day somewhere else. And they're having a meeting online, and you'd be welcome at that meeting. Yeah. One of the things I want to bring to the story now is what led you into counseling? Like, how did you go from, I'm sitting in jail and my family doesn't know what to do with me, to now I'm helping other people and their families? Yes. That's a great question. Because as you know, my bachelor's degree is in fine arts and digital media and photography. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. I forgot about that. (laughs) I do not have a bachelor's in psychology. Well, when I got sober, I feel like it was pretty early into my recovery. Something just shifted in me. And I was like, oh, my God, I want to help people. I, I want to like do this for a living. And I remember they were, they being all the old timers and the people with re- sobriety were like, hold on, get sober first. <laughs> so after I think it was 18 months of sobriety, I was like, all right, I still want to do this. And so then, then they were like, okay, you can, you can do this. Um, so I got the LCDC license first, you know, the chemical dependency counseling one. And I was just thrilled about it. I wanted to work with other addicts and I wanted to help people because my life had changed exponentially, even in just 18 months, right? Even before that. So then I started working in a treatment center in Houston. And then I heard there was a treatment center, the same one in Wimberley, and I transferred to that one. And I worked there for a very long time and I, I loved it. And I still work with addiction. You know, it's not my focus, but I do so much trauma work. Where we see trauma, we see addiction. Where we see addiction, we see trauma. So I got my career started in that way, doing the LCDC, and then I wanted to do more, so I got my master's. Never thought I'd be in private practice, Casey. Well, how do you like it? I love it. I would never want to do anything else. I didn't even feel like I'm going to work. (laughs) So, yeah. Well, as we said earlier, you and I met at that treatment center in Wimberley, did all those family workshops together. But not all counselors like to work with families. Right. They say it scares them or they're not sure what to say. Yeah. But you're a natural at it. What do you think drew you to doing family work? Well, I mean, it's interesting that you say I'm a natural at it because I was terrified to do the family workshop. So I was terrified, but I wanted to do it because I just know that it's not this one isolated person kind of over here on this addiction island. It's a family disease. 
I felt like it would be really great to provide education for the family, let them have a little process group like we were doing. We would have those family members that would say like, oh, I don't need to do anything. I'm not involved in this at all. And I'm like, really? Art, you're not at all. You have nothing to do with anything. And I wanted a challenge too, because I was terrified of it. So I knew that I, there was something going on for me that I needed to work through with my therapist, with family. Which then suggests another question. In what ways did you learn and grow through doing the family workshop? Yeah, I, I will just never forget how powerful it almost every Saturday it happened too when we would be doing that process group with the family members only it's one of my favorite parts of the family workshop when I think we would just be doing the process group but like hands down every time if we could get them to get there the parent would eventually be able to admit that they were also in fear and they were also shaming themselves because they were telling themselves that I messed up as a dad. I could have done something better. It's my fault, my kids and treatment. When on the outside, that looked like anger and, you know, disconnect. But that's not what was going on at all. And that was really helpful for me to be able to hear the family members talking about what's going on for them. One of my favorite parts of Family Workshop also was when we would do the letters at the end of the day and really get to talk to the family member about not being condescending to their loved one and how we all have emotions and let's bring it down to this kind of human to human level and let's talk about our emotions around it. Not what we think, what we think the other person should be doing or what we think they should or shouldn't be doing for their recovery but what we feel. So powerful to watch that connection happen. Mm, it really was. So, just a couple more questions. First, what do you want to say, in summary, to the family members who are listening to this podcast? I suppose it's just that around, you know, recovery not being solely the responsibility of the person who went to treatment or the addict alcoholic recovery is the whole family and it doesn't have to be but it makes the healing process so much better i think everybody should do a 12-step program because you will get to learn so much more about yourself and find your truth and your authenticity no matter what is going on around you, you'll be able to walk in your truth. I think that's the important message. Yeah. Beautiful. All right, last question. Paige, where can people find you? I am on Psychology Today. So it's psychologytoday.com and you can find me, my Name's Paige Mako. My last name is spelled weird. <laughs> it's M-A-J-K-L. So the J silent. I also have a website. My practice name is Chronic Wellness and Counseling. And I have the website for that, chronicwellnesscounseling.com. So that's a really easy way to find me. And I've got a Facebook business page, Chronic Wellness Counseling. 
and you can send me messages that way. And I'm on Instagram as my business, Chronic Wellness Counseling. Well, Paige. Yeah. Thank you so much for doing this interview. Yeah. It was an absolute pleasure having you on the show. Yes. Thank you for having me. I hope it was helpful. It'll help a lot of people. Thank you for listening. I really enjoyed hearing this interview. I hope you did too. Paige is a powerhouse counselor, and she brings a depth of experience, strength, and hope and perspective that is rare. And it's always beautiful to hear from someone who has such strength in their own recovery, both as a person with addiction and as a family member. Hearing Casey and Paige talk about the work they've done together and how that work informs the work they're doing now, I was reminded of how far we've all come over the years in our recovery, in our work, and in our relationships. I wish you all a great month full of grace, love, and realistic hope. Until next time. Thanks for being with us through another episode of Addiction and the Family. As they say in many recovery meetings, take what you liked and leave the rest. Go out and explore the possibilities for recovery in your life and give your loved ones the space and dignity to make their own choices. If you liked this podcast, please subscribe. It means a lot to us. If you know anyone else who could use what we have to offer, please tell them about Addiction to the Family. If you have comments about this podcast, have a question you'd like to answer it on the show, or want to contribute your voice, or just want to say hi, you can write to us at addictionofthefamily at gmail.com. We're also happy to be your friend on Facebook, and we can be found tweeting on Twitter. Addiction in the Family is produced, written, and engineered by Kira and Casey Ariaga, with music by Casey.